Ah, oh, man, they had to show us an Eskimo kiss. I guess this is probably where we got it from. show or different topics for the show, if you will, we are going to be discussing what many have viewed as a straight documentary, but more recently has been considered more of a docu-drama. And so even though we don't do documentaries on this program, on this show, a docudrama, I think, works, and our guest today is going to help me with this. So, the movie that we're going to be doing is the 1922 documentary film, as it was called back in 1922, also a silent film called Nanook of the North. And for a great many people in the lower 48 for sure, like south of Hudson Bay, Canada, this was really the first look at a different kind of people that coexisted amongst the white colonial presence in North America, right? So these are native Inuit people in the far north of Canada, like I said, we're talking east, northeastern part of Hudson Bay is where uh, the filmmaker by the name of Robert J. Flaherty and um, Francis H. Flaherty, or uh, I think I'm saying that right, Flaherty, F-L-A-H-E-R-T-Y. I've heard different pronunciations for it, so I'm hoping I'm I'm doing okay. But... They had gone up on a trek uh, t- up to the far north to see where, uh, who these people are, where they lived, how they lived, and presented the film to audiences, of course, in the southern parts of the North American continent. And uh, they presented it as a look at the life and times of one man who went by the name of Nanook in the movie, although that was not his real name. We'll get into that. His real name was likely Alak. I probably butchered that. Uh, My apologies to Inuit folks. But all the other names are what are credited as the uh, players, except for maybe Nanook's wife, who was just given like 
the name The Smiling One, which is problematic in and of itself, but there we go. Now, again, this was a silent film, came out in 1922, okay, so... There's only a soundtrack, and the soundtrack was played separately to the film, as was the case with silent films at the time. And, uh, it, you know, it was just a uh, set of violins and, and violas and other stringed instruments. Sort of set the stage for how one should feel at various parts. And then interspersed with the scenes and the cuts and the edits of all of the things that were going on in the film. We kind of follow the day, a day in the life, so to speak, of Nanook and the hardships of living off the land in a uh, very unforgiving climate, right? It's very cold. And there's not a lot of animals. There's very little uh, vegetation, right? So... We follow the day in the life, and so interspersed with all of that are title cards that you would read as the audience member. So if you want to watch this movie, I actually I, I recommend the original, Nanook of the North, uh, which is available on Max right now. I don't know how long it will be on Max, but it's available now, and it is essentially a, 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 a like, you have to be glue your eyes are glued you can't just like passively watch this you have to be glued to this particular movie i think you should watch all movies but sometimes you can kind of just like split your attention and and just listen right this one you can't just listen but you can perhaps find the 1939 re-release 1939 about 10 years after like the first talkies uh and so you can find the 1939 re-release which includes barry kroger's narration so you don't need to have um the title cards on there i'm not entire i haven't seen the real release but i would be surprised if they like kept the title cards in there while barry kroger was was narrating uh, that that would seem odd to me so that, that this film came out in 1922, re-released in 1939. It wasn't until the 1970s that uh, another filmmaker decided to revisit the circumstances of the original documentary. And a lot of things were found out to have been big issues when uh, a, a documentary film is being produced and one of those things is are you staging too much of the circumstances the situations the environment for the viewer which subtracts from the like why you're doing a documentary in the first place which is to capture the true and unfettered environment and circumstances and things like that so I, uh, our guest is going to explain why it got changed from a documentary in the film world, right? This is a big piece of film history, especially American film history, and why it's now considered a docudrama. And I think you're going to be as shocked as I was to hear about this, because I had known about Nanook of the North when I did my film history class as uh, as an undergraduate. And 
I didn't realize uh, some of the stuff. So if you are as invested as I am right now to find out what madness occurred, it's not really madness. It is a bit scandalous, I would say. It's, there's some tea to be spilled here. So please join us for a look at Nanook of the North. My guest host today is Dr. Phil Duncan. Phil is an assistant professor of communication and media studies at Eureka College. Hey, I know that place. He has a PhD in communication and media studies from the University of Oregon. His academic work on documentary and docudrama films has been published in the Journal of Film and Video, the Journal of Popular Film and Television, the Historical Journal of Film, Radio and Television, among others. Phil is also a documentary filmmaker. I am so happy to have a colleague of mine from my place of academics. Phil, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here and long time no see. <laughs> exactly, right? I saw yeah. you uh, in the distance earlier today, uh, but I, had, I, was, I was dealing with some crap. Um, I got my uh, a second flat tire in two weeks, so I was I was like checking on my checking my oh, tire. No. So I only saw you off in the distance. Yeah, but that's usually how I like to be seen is afar <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> and not to talk to. Yeah, not talk to. Yeah, <laughs> undisturbed. <laughs> exactly. So uh, I'm I'm I've I've wanted to have you on for a while, and I'm glad we got we were able to come together and and chat about when we could uh, figure out a date and time to do this because you are a documentary filmmaker. You do teach about films in your uh, rotation, your repertoire, and you had just added cinema studies to our catalog. So you know, I'm I'm just happy to have another film person on I, I know we've i've had film people on before as as like film lovers psychologists but you're actually a film dude so oh, now yeah. what is it about film that makes it so uh useful for teaching these concepts i think well yeah whenever i'm teaching film and a lot of the times when i teach film and especially in an undergraduate context it like at eureka for example um, you get a lot of students who have seen films and grown up watching all these movies and things like that. But it, it really had kind of like what I consider a surface level. Like we all go to the movies, we all go and watch Barbie and Oppenheimer and mm -hmm. Barbenheimer. Um, and we watch them and enjoy them. Right. But in my classes, I really tell students, it's like watching that movie is like driving that car. Right. But I yeah. want you to be a mechanic. I want you to be able to pop the hood open and look at these things at a little bit deeper level than just the surface, because I, I think films, especially kind of bigger budget films, mm -hmm. um, they take so much, so much, uh, work and so much attention to make them. They, they, they become kind of mirrors of what's going on in the world at that time, but in some ways more like a prism. Um, where you're kind of seeing like pieces of culture and politics and economics and everything that's going on kind of refracted back at you. And if you kind of take some time to like, you know, understand the art, understand um, kind of the science behind filmmaking, you you are, you can understand those things a little bit deeper. Um, but at some point for me, movies are always going to be a little magical, right? They're just that, yeah. that play, that play of light and sound and all of those things kind of coming together. 
Um, we can analyze it to death, but I mean, one of my favorite places is just to kind of tur- turn that side of my brain off and just sit back in a dark theater and just like enjoy it. Um, so I think in some ways I like both sides of it. I like the analytical, but also just the the movie going experience is something that's always been really uh, a profound thing for me. And sharing it with others who may not um, know any better yet. I think that's absolutely part of why I use it, because I, I, I don't think our current crop of and generation of students see as many movies as we used to. Um, your, you and my my age and then older. Not a lot of people go to the movies anymore. Part of, I think, what ruined that was the pandemic, of course. But even before that, I would ask my students. Uh, what was the last movie that that you watched? And many of them are like, "Wow, well, we watched TV shows or yeah, just like I, streaming yeah, shows. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, yeah, I was just talking to some students and why I'm teaching a class right now about um, film in rural America. So they mm-hmm. were all assigned, um, you know, ru- I, I randomly drew. Um, I don't know if I'll do that again. It's kind of a <laughs> crapshoot, but randomly drew this from this list of movies that you helped me put together last mm-hmm. year. Um, of films around the topic of, you know, rural America, right. um, loosely defined. And I randomly assigned them all different movies ranging from, you know, the 30s all the way up to probably the 90s. And mm-hmm. one of the they enjoyed the exercise, but I would say probably the biggest complaint was that the movies were too slow for them. And I just think <laughs> I, it's kind of an indictment a little bit on kind of the modern media scape where everything is fast cuts, condensed, quick, right. you know, bite-sized pieces of media. So actually sitting down and as somebody said, quoted in my class today, it was just 10 minutes of Brad Pitt fishing. And I'm like, you're supposed to kind of enjoy that part, you know, like you're supposed to like kind of look at the the the, the character uh, kind of below the surface and soak the scene in. But I think as a culture, especially as a younger culture, it's kind of getting more tuned to that, like, you know, the TikTok kind of edits and things, um, which I don't think traditional kind of classical film is really meant for. So I see those as being very different um, forms of media. Yeah, and I think it's it's definitely changing the landscape. So let's pivot to our current film, which kind of interestingly, you, you had mentioned, um, you know, the the light and the sound spectacle. We don't really have the sound spectacle in this movie because it is of the silent film era. So Nanook of the North, perhaps one of the um, earliest documentary films prior to, you know, uh, people get on a train in 1895 by the Lumiere brothers, but you know, that that's, I guess, documentarian ish, I suppose. But this yeah. one was like <laughs> a feature length documentary. So, and, and because you're not a psychologist and I, I, and I, and I knew that going into asking you, I was curious as to what documentaries might, um, bridge the gap between fiction films, which is the primary uh, scape of the show, and documentaries, which is your wheelhouse. And you suggested Nanook of the North. So for the listeners, expand on that choice. Yeah, I would say I, I gravitated towards Nanook of the North because it is often, you know, dis- discussed and described as one of the first feature link documentaries. And in some ways kind of was a proof of concept in that feature length documentary, because like you mentioned before that um, documentaries were kind of, you know, short technical Mm -hmm. 
just trying to demonstrate, you know, the the potentials of the medium. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas this this piece in general, or in this piece, kind of came together, um, bringing in a lot of these modern vocabularies of filmmaking, right? Okay. Like editing, um, oh, yeah, different sure. angles, things like the characterization, right? Like mm-hmm. actually having a subject of your of your film instead of just the train coming through the screen or the man sneezing or things like that. Yeah, right. So it, so in that sense, you have that idea of, of, a, of a kind of true documentary, the way we think about documentaries, even today, right? Even, even in the modern context. Um, but in a lot of ways, and this is kind of why I, I like discussing this film, is that a lot of it is very staged. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's kind of problematic in a modern context, just right. based on who made the film and who's being represented. Um, and just the idea that um, it plays with that idea of, of reality versus fiction of kind of making a time based period drama mm-hmm. that's that's highlighting kind of an indigenous culture that even at the time this film was being made um, was not necessarily a true representation of the way people were living at that time. So in some ways, it's almost like a, a diorama that you would see in a mu- museum, you know, where you walk in and you I see, like you know people dressed in period garb and, you know, sitting around a campfire. It's not necessarily um, reflective of the real life of the people in the the film, as we'll probably talk about. It kind of brings this, um, this back to how the film was presented in 1922 to audiences versus how it's viewed now. Right. Um, So I want to go into some of the reasons why, as you said, it's mostly staged or, some some of the things that are presented on on the film in the visuals aren't necessarily what they seem or what they were so what could you tell us about the issues that has dogged this documentary since it came out i would say some of the issues that kind of continue to the it really kind of revolves around this thing that we you know talk about i think it's it comes from anthropology the term um that kind of idea of this like noble savage in quotation marks sure. the idea of presenting kind of a indigenous people um as kind of this other um that and not necessarily in a negative connotation i think in some ways even though flaherty um is being very paternalistic in a way that he talks about the, the the subjects of this movie it's also you can tell that it's he's he his intentions i guess are in a, the right place for the you know just for for kind of looking at it through the scope of who he was and the in the time period right because we can't really ignore the context because we're talking about a 101 year old movie at this point yeah um but definitely some of you know some of those kind of things so flaherty is kind of depicting um, this man who who he calls Nanook, who's not his that's not his real name. Nanook actually means polar bear in, in the Inuit language. Mm-hmm. Um, he's depicting Nanook and his family. Um, you know, his he has a wife and maybe I can't I don't I, to be honest, I, it's never really clarified whether he has two wives pr- shown or just one. Um, but there's two adult women and a couple children. Okay, um, yeah. In reality, yeah. those two women were actually Flaherty's common law wives um, who he fathered children with and later abandoned for anybody who's interested in that kind of backstory. There's a really interesting documentary called Nanook Revisited from the 1990s where they go back to that same community and kind of follow up. And it's on that aftermath. Yeah. 
Um, and, 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 you know, just kind of the dress was shown as being like, you know, seal furs and things like that. Um, I'm sure that was still part of the culture at that place, but not necessarily how people live day to day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a whole, the, at the end of the film, there's that coda scene where it kind of, where the title card talks about how, you know, Nanook starved to death two years after the film was made because the whole, the whole film is kind of depicted as this battle of survival, right? Between yeah. Nanook and the, the North, literally. Right. Um, and, and in kind of, you know, trying to survive and hunt and all these things and kind of the tribulations that come with that. Um, but in reality, you know, that's never been substantiated. It's it's more likely that he died from something like tuberculosis, which would have been more prevalent, you know, in the 1920s. It makes more um, sense so, to me, really, that yeah, he would and, die of tuberculosis when, you know, his ancestors probably figured out how not to starve to death. Yeah. And, the, you know, just and it comes, you know, and there's there's a scene where they kind of build an igloo um, in real time, which is actually really interesting to watch and in, in, in yeah, play out in it real is. time. And the cinematography is great. They photograph that scene. Great. But you can look up pictures, you know, online and it shows that they only made half of an igloo so they could fit all the camera equipment into the to the space because mm-hmm. you might be wondering, oh, how are they getting all this these great footage of life inside of a space that's probably, you know, has a. Um, diameter of seven feet well that's because they only made it half so it's it it's, c- comes back to that point is like it's it's a diorama right it's a, it's showing you kind of a way of life um mm-hmm. but in a fictionalized way um and i think that really only becomes really problematic is when you start forwarding that is the reality and at that time it definitely was yeah and and some of the the things that i had spotted with that this with this was the the different camera angles, especially during the walrus hunt uh, segments where they were where they were hunting walrus or um, even uh, the the seal hunting as well, where there was just a lot of different angles, a lot of different flows of ice, like moving from ice flow to ice flow, making sure that <clears throat> the flow probably was sturdy enough for the camera crew and and the camera itself they were big big giant things back then right absolutely yeah and that's something i think we forget about a lot of the times when we watch reality um you know even reality tv i was just watching a travel show the other night with my family and you know they show a guy kind of you know jumping across a mountain and i'm like well the camera guy had to do it first to get on the other side to shoot and he did it with or they did it with the equipment in their hands <laughs> to get the actual shot so like yeah. you need to remember that there's like yeah there's other you know these images and i think that's a big part of kind of the in some ways that the flaherty's legacy is that kind of using editing, using cinematography to kind of make a depiction of real life that kind of draws your attention away from the idea that you're watching a movie and more that you're just kind of voyeuristically looking into somebody's life um, through, you know, things like the editing, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's really smooth and flows well. And so, you know, us as modern cinema goers and, you know, people who grew up with the medium, um, we don't really even think twice when we see like a, a cut that's nice and smooth between a, a, a close up and a long shot. Mm-hmm. But those would have been really revolutionary back in the 20s. Those wouldn't yeah. have been something that you necessarily would have seen in a lot of documentary films. So doing that creates that semblance of reality. It makes it look like you're looking over the person's shoulder and looking kind of like have a, a, a spyglass into their life. 
Um, and I, I think that's a, a kind of a really big part of the legacy in, of this movie. So you would say that the techniques that Flaherty used in putting this together um, with the smooth cuts and the, the different angles of things really is f- to represent being there with our own eyes and that this translated to a better way to documentary filmmake. Yeah, in some ways, I would say that it definitely began kind of that school of cinema verite that mm-hmm. that got yep. really popular in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And it continues to this day where basically the goal is to create a portrait of reality um, without drawing attention. So it lacks, I mean, there are... It, Obviously, narration, Flaherty narrated this film as best he could through a lot of title cards. Um, but, you know, there was no sound. He couldn't record himself. There, There's no, like, dialogue, obviously. Right. Um, but but it does kind of play into that, like, you know, you see it later in, with the Maisel brothers in the, the 60s and 70s um, with Grey Gardens and things like that. It's basically like a, a window into somebody's life without um, some, any sort of real kind of over-heavy authorial intent um i'm thinking kind of uh, as we were talking about um earlier right you know the kind of the michael moores or the Werner herzogs yes um yeah the morgan spurlock kind of type of documentary where they're very much part of the story right um flaherty wasn't he he kept himself out of it for the most part um at least in front of the camera and (laughs) what was depicted to the audience Um, yes the 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 why i I come back to the wives (laughs) yeah yeah um yeah so there's definitely i think he was conscious about that and i think in some ways when you think about it he he was trying to present this idea of salvage ethnography as it's called basically trying to showcase a way of life before it was gone completely which I think in some ways is admirable, especially if you make films like I, I personally make films about uh, I've been I've been working on a film about blues music, mm-hmm. which in some ways in Mississippi is kind of on its long way out, you know, like more and more of the, the oldest generations gone, yeah. the newest generations on their way out. You know, most modern young musicians down there are, are, aren't interested in, in pursuing the genre. Mm-hmm. So there is something about collecting that kind of footage before you can't anymore um even if you are contriving some of it so part of me is kind of gives him a pass on that because i do think he was trying to um you know he has a quote that says that he says he wants to kind of show the former majesty and character of these people while it's still possible and while that sounds like really paternalistic and problematic kind of from a racial politics perspective sure um i think if we if we give him a generous read um we can say well maybe he had the right intentions in play um and then but then at that same time we can't give him a complete pass even in the context of 1922 because obviously a lot of the things that he pioneered continued into the the 20 20th and 21st century mm-hmm. um and are, are worth looking at so I wanted to ask you, and, I, and and if you don't know the answer to this question, that's fine, too. Um, but what is or what was um, any sort of of outcome or I don't want to say backlash because I don't know if it's been negative, but the consistent use of the word Eskimo in the film. Do you know any any more backstory related to that? I'm, I'm super curious because even at this point in time, 
there we knew what many of these peoples called themselves in the far north in the arctic right one of those biggest groups being the inuit as you had said but of course as americans we grew up with this term eskimo so i'm just curious if you had any um background knowledge of that i don't have much about that i know that this film was really popular when it came out it was an international success international uh, success was, wow i think it was i think it was germany you could buy nanook ice cream um like a kind of like a like a you know it was commodified commercialized and things like that so it did i i, I can't speak to how prevalent that term was before and then after the film but i would say that it definitely this film reached a very far reaching audience. I mean, it was financially successful, cr mm. critically really successful. Mm. I mean, this, this thing kind of blew the, this, there's a reason we're still talking about it 101 years later. It, it was right. a kind of an international sensation just based on, I mean, the fact that he lugged twice, <laughs> lugged cameras up to the North. Oh, right, right, right. That I, I want you to, to talk about that more because this is a huge one. And when you watch the film, it's basically the first title card. So, so why twice, Phil? Okay. So, yeah. So, so Robert Flaherty went to the North once on kind of an expedition to make a film. He shot all the footage he wanted. He got back, um, he says he showed it around and that he didn't like the results or what happened. And then he ended up dropping a cigarette on it while he was um, editing it and just burned the entire master print. OK, pause. So. There. Pause there for a second. <laughs> yeah. So he didn't like the initial screenings. So he accidentally dropped a cigarette on something that he probably knew was flammable. That's scandalous right there. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, in, 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 you know, as te testament, I guess, to whatever his grit or whatever, uh, cause I don't know if I would have had it in me to, to do it again, but he <laughs> went back again and, you know, tr getting to the, the far North of upper, I believe it's upper Quebec. I can't, I'm trying to think yeah. what, it, what the modern province would be at, at this point. But getting, you know, dog sleds and equipment and things up there in the middle of the winter to do it all over again. Um, he did it twice. So, yeah. And the second time, I guess he was happy enough not to burn it to cinders. <laughs> <laughs> he was probably getting financed this time. Oh, and he definitely was, right? The second time he got a big, big chunk of money from Rivian Frères, the Rivian Brothers, okay. um, a fur company based out of France, right? So that's kind of a good segue into the idea of another reason why I think that this really speaks to me, uh, you know, as a kind of a this proto kind of commercial documentary um, film nice. is that he had corporate sponsorship. Um, <laughs> and in some ways that corporate sponsorship, you could argue makes an appearance in, in the film um, in, in a, in a very famous yet kind of problematic scene when Nanook's family goes and visits this fur trapping or fur trading outpost. Mm -hmm. um, and it's shown as kind of this beacon of civilization. One of the kids is sick because he overeats himself on food He's given mm -hmm. castor oil to to make him feel better by the kindly um, fur trapper. It's shown as a way that they can sell their their goods from from hunting, you know, polar bear furs, seal furs, etc. For you know other uh, items. But then there's a really problematic scene where they show Nanook, you know, basically hearing a record for the first time, and you know, 
which may or may not have been the case. We don't really know, but this right. is how it's presented to us. Yeah. Um, he picks it up off the the spindle. He bites it with his teeth. You know, there's it's just very kind of a. It's almost like Flaherty's trying to show this kind of juxtaposition between primi- primitiveness and civilization, mm-hmm. and it's all done under this kind of, like I said, this kind of racial socioeconomic backdrop that in the modern context especially is is kind of hard to watch in a lot of ways right and i think that a a modern audience would probably be turned off by several scenes so uh the 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 tag that i have at the start of this episode is about the eskimo kiss and i grew up thinking that that was fine just rub noses with my mom or whatever and and that'd be and and that's what you see in 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 the uh the scene is that one of the women the uh one of the wife or the wife of nanook i should say and one of the children like uh, the baby boy i think his son do the eskimo kiss and you know i was told as a young kid that this is uh a the re- the reason why um they did this was because if they had touched lips, that moisture from their their lips would make their lips stick together. And so they rub noses instead. But even then, that's an ethnocentric reason, right? We, we don't really know why they rub noses. Maybe that was just a, uh, uh, a way that these... Two individual people did it, right? We don't know if that is because I don't think there's any scientific validity behind. Oh, their lips would get stuck together. Yeah, I've never, I actually never heard that before. That's interesting. But and there are those scenes that obviously we're looking through Flaherty's lens. But there's a scene where Nanook's using like his saliva to like slick slicken the the treads of the sled to make him icy. Yeah. Um. It's yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, as far as as far as that's concerned, that 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 scene stuck struck me too because I'm wondering if that. I mean, I, I'm just speculating here. I don't have any sort of background or to to back this up, but I'm wondering if that term Eskimo kiss was popularized through this film mm-hmm. um, because this would have been a very early kind of mass media encounter people would have had with this culture in particular. Right, so, right, um, yeah. I'm I'm assuming that a lot of what we think. As, especially as an American kind of culture and this being a kind of a massive exposure that we had to that. I'm wondering if everything, you know, all of these kind of tropes and stereotypes that we see or grew up with, especially, you know, in the the unsophisticated 90s, you know, back before we kind of wised up to, to the to the thing to things. Um, I'm wondering if that's just kind of a carryover from you know the 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 stereotypes that were kind of first put out in a film like this yeah though with that said you know i'm sure there's adventure stories going back to the 1700s that probably talk about some of those similar things but at the same time you know film is so much more democratic right than 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 literature ever would exactly um, in any ways so yeah, it always it it struck me immediately as I saw it, and and you're probably right that it is probably not the first mention of it, but as you say, democratically and popular popularizing it with a 20th century audience um, that has a stronger ability uh, to be able to share it through oral traditions or whatever. The other thing that I was thinking of, too, with 
some of these, uh, I guess, stereotypical presentations of Nanook, his wife, his children the, at the trading post and all of the things that you have said. I wonder if part of that is because we have talked about it for 101 years as we have doing this now. So the idea of wanting to revisit some of the facts that are mentioned about uh, Nanook and, and the other people, the fact that it, that that's not his name and, and exploring all of these other things in that 90s documentary Nanook Revisited. I mentioned in the intro that in 1939, it was uh, re-released with a narrator uh, instead of the title cards. I think I don't I've, I've not seen the, the re-release, but it would make sense to me that the narrator's not just reading for <laughs> reading for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they cut the title cards out. So and then you just have the narrator telling you about it. And so over time, it just kind of compounds on itself. So more and more people end up seeing it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um, and it's it, it is kind of a cultural touch point, you know, as far when I when I'm thinking of kind of, you know, top kind of 10, you know, most influential films of, you know, in history, like, you know, there's things I don't want to actually have to name that list right now, by the way. But uh, <laughs> um, but if I had, but if I, I would definitely save a spot on it for Nanook of the North, just because for a lot of the things we talked about already, just the cinematography, the editing, the, the sto visual storytelling, right? Like you said, there's no in the original release, there's really no Oh, there's no narration. There's some title cards yeah. that kind of substitute in for narration. Right. But but a lot of the story is just told through the camera, which is really kind of took that took the art form to another level in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, and, and, and the audience responded. So it, it continues to this day. Yeah, it's like the it's it's in the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically and aesthetically significant. And that was back in 1989 that it was was put in the National Film Registry. So we're we're talking now 30 plus years and we're still talking about it. And like you said, you use it in your class as a as this piece of documentary filmmaking that spawned some of the rest. And and I just think that it it is interesting that there is so many controversies around it. I think one of the biggest ones, and and this will be, I think it will be the last uh part of the like, was it is it a documentary or is it a docudrama kind of question? Is that like some people came out and said it was a it was flat out hoax, like everything about it was staged, nothing about the film itself was even a documentary about the actual circumstances of these Inuit people. And I'm wondering if at this point, does it even matter? I think, I think the answer to that is probably what draws me to this film back in, you know, every couple of years I'll rewatch it okay. and I teach it, I teach it often. And I think that it really just kind of comes down to, it does and it doesn't because it doesn't matter because we are understand that movies are magic and <laughs> yeah. that documentaries. I think what we should all understand is that documentaries are 
fictionalized realities in a yes. lot of ways. Even the most, even the most straight up, straightforward documentary that you want to watch has some sort of authorial intent behind it. Every edit is a conscious decision made by a person sitting down behind a computer, most likely these days, or Flaherty's case, a cigarette and a editing machine where he had to cut the footage. Um, <laughs> I love so it. yes, so so I think that definitely um, it doesn't matter in the sense that we we have to all be on the same page that a documentary is using reality as the raw material to make a fictionalized story. Mm-hmm. And I'm comfortable with that in, in my own filmmaking, too. I have come to terms with that. I think it still is important because I think there's a set of ethics involved Mm -hmm. um, around making a documentary film when you know that that's the case. And I don't think Flaherty followed those ethics um, Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, And I think a lot of that is just kind of time-based, contextual. He was a white man going to a non-white community in the early 20th century. And that came with a colonial mindset Mm -hmm. that I think you still see. Um, and, and kind of permeates that entire filmmaking process. Um, but I think, so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but I do think that, I think that there's so much kind of at play there that it doesn't matter in the sense that we're all on the same page. Documentaries are not true in the most capital T sense of the form. Sure. Um, but it, but it is important, um, because we need to kind of keep documentaries accountable to reality, to that raw material, to the people that are depicted in there. Right. You don't want, um, because you're, these, those are real people's lives. Um, and you know, in modern, especially in a modern context, when media is so ubiquitous and everywhere, um, you don't want to be part of the problem. If, especially if you're trying to make a film that's trying to solve the problem, you don't want to exacerbate it by making these kind of ethical, uh, bad judgment calls. Yeah. Could you uh, speak a little bit more as a documentary filmmaker yourself? I'm kind of digressing here, but you mentioned ethics of documentary filmmaking. So um, could you briefly explain uh, as as, you know, the 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 documentary filmmaker in the room, but also speaking to, you know, somebody who has to manage the ethics of human subjects research on on our campus? And so I'm I'm always thinking about ethics. So could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I think there's probably a lot of <clears throat> overlap between making a documentary film and kind of doing research, right? Sure. That human human centered research. Yeah. First of all, you are in collaboration in a way, even though you might be the one guiding the, the the process it's still a, you can't one can't exist without the other yeah um so i think that that's important to kind of keep in mind is that in my own case you know when i'm interviewing people um i probably will pay them a little bit just to kind of make sure especially if they're a musician um okay. and that's their livelihood um i have no problem paying a musician to record and talk to me um i don't feel like that jeopardizes the quality of the answers i'm going to get um i feel like consent's a big thing Mm -hmm. um making sure that people are comfortable with the story you're going to tell and that comes from building trust um with a person before kind of jumping into the weeds Mm -hmm. um kind of telling them what you're going to be doing what's the aim what's the goal where do you think this is going to show up and then just kind of being a good collaborator even when you're done working with them i feel like maybe and i think this is robert flaherty is definitely guilty of this and that's he took what he wanted 
he got his story and he left. Mm-hmm. He left a child. He left a child. A very if you watch Nanuka of the North, that child grew up into a very bitter adult um, for having that experience in life. Wow. So I think that's the thing too is keeping from my own work. You know, working on my my film. You know, as I'm getting closer to being finished with it. I'm starting to follow up with the people that were in it. I'm going to start sharing it with them first um, just to make sure that they're comfortable with it. Because the the last thing I want to do is put this thing out in the world and have somebody be mad or regret talking to me. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be a that would be a failure on my part as if they saw it and they weren't happy with the way they were shown or depicted mm-hmm. or if they thought I took things out of context. I think that would be that would make it a, a that would be unethical in my opinion. So I think that. A lot like working with a research um, in a research context, when you're working with another human being, you have to acknowledge the humanity of everybody involved, even right. if it's a based on a relationship of where there is a, definitely a power dynamic um, in those situations. And you just yeah. have to be aware of it and yeah. try to make it make it more equitable and comfortable, I think, um, because you are the one if you're the researcher, you're the filmmaker that comes with that power. Mm-hmm. And I think that. You can wield that like Robert Flaherty and kind of will your creation into play or you can take a step back and, and be, you know, and, and I think, you know, a lot of people who, who do ethnography as a research method or ethnographic filmmaking in the modern context understand that you need to work with the community to make this product as in collaboration rather than just kind of showing up with a camera and then leaving and never coming back. Right. And it, it is it is. uh that's good to hear. I like that. So um, from, from what I hear is uh, do then your subjects have um, f- like, forgive me for using this, but like final cut approval. I have yet to encounter an issue where that might where that kind of ultimatum would come down. Mm-hmm. I would say if somebody I, I would I would work with them to make it right um, and and go from there. Um, but with that said. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it, that's a tricky question. Yeah, too. It it's is. like you know, it's like the the ethics of it behind it are because like they agreed to be in a documentary and they signed a release form, sure. um, which which is necessary in kind of all contexts. Um, so I would I would definitely listen. I would definitely be open to making changes. I don't think I would throw an entire project out because one person. I might re-edit it, change things a little bit. <laughs> maybe take a person out if they just absolutely didn't want to be part of the project yeah. anymore because there's really nobody wins in that situation, right? They're unhappy with them. Um, with that film, you're going to be unhappy with all the scenes depicting that person. Yeah. If you just kind of begrudgingly force them to like kind of continue in it. Um, but I have luckily in Knockwood have not encountered that, but at the same time, I'm not doing, um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I try to cover my bases early. I try to build these relationships um, you know, the first time when I was working on this recent project, you know, I basically went down there and got a little bit of footage, but mostly just built relationships. I didn't even really sure. interview anybody. So then when I came back down a couple months later with my camera, I had connections and people were, it was almost like, you know, you jumped right into it and you, you had all these conversations on email, you ran bounced ideas back off of each other. So it wasn't so much like I felt like I was like an investigative journalist kicking a door open saying like, what do you have to say about this? <laughs> like it was like it was it was there was a rapport built. And I, I like to think there was some sort of a mutual trust that I'm still kind of earning over time by, you know, being 
ethical and following up and making sure everybody's still kind of okay with the direction the project's taking. And I think um, people will uh, generally uh, flock to that if that, if that makes sense, like they will recognize that and be more open in the future, right? With not just you, but other people who might want to know about their story or, or something like that. Well, this is the last time that I, I last time I did this, I had a really good experience, blah, blah, blah. This is what they did, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it kind of that ethical behavior breeds more ethical behavior that of course that's my hope <laughs> that's what i teach my students right like as long as yeah, you're ethical definitely. i think you will be a model for ethics in the future so that's that's my hope i and i any and the alternative is too scary to think about yeah. and that's just everybody becomes unethical right Absolutely. so <laughs> you have to control at least what you can control huh? yeah in that sense and i think bringing it back to the this documentary um and how in some ways flaherty acted unethically does sort of not diminish the film because obviously it kind of didn't get diminished uh in, in that respect but you kind of wonder how else would this have been different you kind of think about the counterfactual and be like well if he had done this more ethically uh it, back when he had done it i'm i'm curious on i'm really curious and this is now lost to time but how the first film filming went in that in, in that first encounter uh, because he kind of gives a little bit of it away in the title card where he's explaining, you know, my first attempt, the the film went up in flames and everything like that. And we had to come back and redo it. Um, And I'm wondering if he was trying to capture some of that magic, as you've been saying, magic from the early part, which may have been a little bit more organic. Yeah, I mean... Well, that's the, yeah, that's a question we will never, we will never know. <laughs> uh, it's a and, lot lost the time, but <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I do. Yeah. Um, and I was just going to say you are you, you, while you were talking about um, your relationships with these folks and how, you know, other filmmakers might have relationships with these folks. I I think <laughs> I thought of this power dynamic you had said, and I thought it was, it is thought popped into my head. Like, and the, the gentleman who played Nanook could have murdered Flaherty very easily. I mean, he he probably had tussled a lot with seals and with walruses, polar bears, as is described in the movie. And it's like, dude, if you had taken the wrong step. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, I like I think I don't know. I've. I, I can't pinpoint my source on this um, at the moment, but I, I feel like the the actor that played Nanukin, um, you know, was game for for doing this. And there's actually some pretty interesting commentary. Like there's that scene where they're they're they've harpooned this walrus in the the shore of the and it's fighting back. Right. And you keep seeing the actor look back at the camera and he's shouting. You can't hear him because the but based on like Flaherty's journal, he's basically saying, like, give me your gun. <laughs> give, give give me your gun so I could finish this. Like, <laughs> but Flaherty, but Flaherty refuses. And it's 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 really kind of 
dire. Like it's a that's a huge animal, right? That's being very provoked. And Flaherty's basically just standing back and saying, "Whatever happens, I'm going to get a good shot here." You know, so um, yeah, it, it goes both ways. I'm, I'm, I think Flaherty could have got the actor killed a lot, like a lot more than by just kind of putting him in those situations for the sake of for the sake of the narrative um, in some mm-hmm. ways. So I, I, I don't know, based on, it, it seems like obviously like Flaherty had the, had the ability to show his prints to the actors. And I'm pretty sure that that would probably be if you're living in, you know, North Quebec in the early 1920s and outside of a major city that you would have been, you would have been enraptured by the magic of movies. Oh yeah. Even more, more so than, so seeing yourself kind of hunting and doing your day-to-day life on, on film being played, it had to have been kind of just, I mean, if I I put myself, if I try to put really try hard to put myself in his position, I say, yeah, I would be playing to the camera as well too, you know, (laughs) who knows what will come of this, you know, this guy, this guy comes, this rich guy from America is coming to make a movie about me. Like, I mean, Mm-hmm. The, the 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 sad part is is that you know like i said flaherty kind of took took the 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 story and left and you know um kind of like left everything kind of you know without any sort of follow-up or or you know yeah, any closure sort of payoff or payback yeah. or closure yeah um and that's that's why i really like showing that nanook of or sorry, uh, Nanook revisited mm-hmm. after showing this because it kind of shows you the aftermath of unethical production um, and how that can have multi-generational effects, especially in a place mm-hmm. that's impoverished um, and, you know, has all these kind of socioeconomic um, problems. Um, so I just think that it's, in some ways, it's kind of a cautionary tale about how not to make one of these kind of drop-in <laughs> ethnographic documentaries. Yeah, um, because it leaves a it leaves kind of it leaves it, it just leaves a bad taste in everybody's mouth who was involved, except for Flaherty. <laughs> I mean, he he probably took his money to the bank, but yes, um, he did. And of the all of the success afterwards, I would imagine. <laughs> okay, so my last question for you, and this was a this is a fun one. Because what I normally do is I intersperse scenes from the films in the show, and I can't really do it in this one. I that's I, true. I, yeah. um, I had another <laughs> I had another uh uh silent film. No, no, it wasn't a silent film, it was Rashomon. So I couldn't do clips because they were all in Japanese. <clears throat> okay, so this is this is what I do with some guests sometimes, and because I can't I can't do the audio version of any scenes. What is your favorite scene since you've seen it multiple times and you revisit it, you know, especially when you when you teach it in your course? What is your favorite scene and why? I would say from a pure image based kind of scene, it would definitely be when the family is pulled out of the kayak when they pull up to the shore. For <laughs> it, it, At one point, it looks like just Nanook's, you know paddling this kayak yes. he hops out he pulls two to three kids <laughs> two adult two adult women and a puppy from underneath the kayak and every time i watch this movie i say what happens if this thing flips over uh, because <laughs> like they are stuffed into this kayak without and i'm just it's almost like a it's it, it, it's definitely slapstick i mean that's what it's intended to be yeah. right in that in this context but you're just it's like how many it's just it's just you just, it's just a surprising 
and it's like lev- it's like a moment of levity in an otherwise kind of like a dire survival driven narrative yeah. and it's and and I think the funniest parts when this little puppy kind of just gets pulled out and it's just like okay what else is going to come out you know <laughs> right um I would say that, that that's every time I see that scene I'm uh, yeah it, it's it definitely draws me in that i uh, i mean it is it is the real life version of a clown car trope yeah and i and i don't even know i mean obviously i don't know if that's something if that was a standard way of travel or if it was just a performance for the sake of the camera mm. but um it's effective it's it's from a purely filmmaking standpoint it's a very effective scene i will tell you when i when i watched this and so i've seen the scene for the first time i was like okay nanook gets out of it all right sounds good and then the two kids i'm like okay there's some space in there all right that's fine and then one of the adult the next adult comes out of it i was like wait a minute there's definitely not enough room in this boat for that and then when the and then the the puppy like is that the puppy at the at the very end at the nose yeah. just like uh-huh. hanging out like make any sense <laughs> yeah. to me it, it was it's and it's not a special effect not it's a special effect which i think is even better effect. than the yeah. the clown car trope because it was real yeah. so it was good definitely real um i don't necessarily have a same scene as that for for my favorite but what I did like is this, so there's a um several close-ups of a wolf snarling and I thought that that was both um great dramatic uh kind of of of, of imagery right so I'm sure not very many people who saw this movie had ever seen like a a, a wolf snarl at them um probably dogs but they don't look as scary in my opinion so and and several close-ups and flaherty had had makes this um juxtaposition between uh the wolf wanting the food that they had just uh hunted and them trying to keep it right and trying to like keep it at bay because their food i think those I don't I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I feel like those might be like wolf. Those were def I think they're wolf like hybrids. I think oh, those wolf were the hybrids. like okay. s- those were kind of like his sled team, but they were definitely not like your family dog. These right. were like yes. they had they basically had to put the puppies in their own miniature igloo to protect them from these like adult yes. who were I mean, and you saw in the scene you're referencing, right? It's like they're feeding these dogs, but it's like even feeding them is like a harrowing event because yeah. these they're just they're basically wild until you get a, a harness on them and then they'll pull you, you know. Oh, OK. Yeah, an right. Hour. And and I, I think but, at one point they say they have to, like, put what they don't eat, like, high up, maybe on top of the igloo. But I'm not entirely oh, it's, sure. Yeah, it's their, it's their sled. Their sled. So they, don't eat the, they don't eat the sled, basically. I mean, I guess if anybody has, like, a dog that eats, you know, like the shoe or whatever. It's, like yeah. it's, it's a bigger shoe, yeah. Um, but <laughs> But, yeah, no, those dogs are – I think they were – they definitely had to have been hybrid – um, and they were very utilitarian. They were not um, the family pet, that's for sure. But there was this really cute husky puppy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I want to know more about this husky puppy. Probably no longer of this world. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine it. so. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe its bloodline um, has existed beyond. But yeah, and there's definitely, and that's, I think, the big one of the big 
things about this film from a narrative standpoint is that it does a pretty good job. And you see this a lot in like nature documentaries, especially it's like it plays that scene by scene juxtaposition of dire survival Mm -hmm. situations with kind of more like playful nuclear family type, you know, living. And you see that in a lot of different things. Um, and I think that you see that a lot there, right? Like, I, I, I think that that if you give Flaherty a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, he's trying to show you that there's a universality to, you know, familial love and what, what you're willing to do for your family and things like that. No matter where you live. Um, yeah, no matter where you live or how you live. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's trying to show that even if it's a completely contrived experience um but i think the story itself is attempting to do that well i want to thank dr phil duncan for joining me to discuss nanook of the north before we say goodbye phil is there anything that you'd like to plug i know you've been talking about your um your documentary so maybe talk a little bit more about that yeah, I'm, f- I'm finishing up a short documentary that I've been working on for the last year or so. Uh, it's called Mississippi Mud, The Natural History of the Blues. So I do a lot of um, research on kind of environmental media mm-hmm. in addition to my work in documentary. And actually, that dovetails a lot into the kind of environmental documentary stuff that I do, which is why I think Nanook of the North kind of speaks to me. It's because mm-hmm. of that kind of natural aspect to it. Awesome. Um, so yeah, this film is basically looking at blues music, which I'm, I've have had a long time of affinity to ever since I was a little kid. I met Bo Diddley when he played my little hometown when I was a kid. Nice. Um, and, and the environment, right? So going through the Mississippi Delta, if anybody's ever done that, um, is a very, it's, it feels like a very different experience for someone who might not have grown up or been around there Uh and why, why in kind of the central thesis of this is why have, why did this whole genre kind of span out of a, 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 a small little area of rural America that was mm. a couple hundred miles square? So just kind of looking into the history, the culture, um, definitely race, um, definitely the environment, mm-hmm. agriculture, um, and obviously music and kind of trying to tie that all together in about 15 minutes. So it's a short um, okay. project that I'm hoping I'll, that'll be available um, in some form or another within the next year or so. So excellent. I will, yeah, as soon as that's that. available, I will link that retroactively in the show notes. So current, current listeners, listeners in the immediate, uh, release of this episode won't, won't, that won't be ready yet, but perhaps it will be, um, for you listeners in the distant future. Yeah, I, th- I appreciate that. I will definitely let all of y'all know. And I, I'm interested. So, does anybody? Uh, you mentioned people play music. So, um, in the in the short, do you, do you have anybody playing music? Yeah, I'm, I met up with a musician. His name's Terry Big T Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a he learned from his godfather um, Jack the Oil Man Johnson, mm-hmm. who used to drive an oil truck during the day and make awesome blues music at night. And Jack um, Johnson would have been a kind of a protege of that first generation of blues um, people from Mississippi, like Muddy Waters Mm -hmm. and and, then them. So um, Big T's definitely a part of that lineage. And he's played an old, he, uh, he came over to my Airbnb down in Clarksdale, Mississippi one morning and 
we he played some music for me we talked for a couple hours uh-huh. and um he's a really cool voice in this project um and i'm really kind of happy that i get to kind of use his music to tie together all these these thoughts because um i i see him as kind of a living living legend a living kind of link to some of this really really deep um american art in my in my opinion maybe the most american art if i be so blunt (laughs) and bold yes yeah and bold all right well thanks again phil i appreciate you joining me on the show thank you for having me this was a lot of fun and that's gonna do it for this episode until the next one thanks for listening